Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. There's a video that sums up exactly how I felt after this terrible weekend where dozens of people died in mass shootings in Texas and Ohio. We are here tonight because we know that we cannot... We know that we cannot ease the pain of those families who have lost someone. This tape is from a vigil in downtown Dayton. The governor, Mike DeWine, is talking. And you can hear as he speaks, protesters are starting to interrupt him. Their calls get louder. They're asking the governor to just do something. Lawmakers have been trying to do something about gun violence for a while now. Earlier this year, Congress actually passed a bill that expanded background checks for gun owners. That bill died in the Senate. And when the president addressed the country yesterday morning, his focus was on punishing the mentally ill and accused murderers, not gun control. In the aftermath of a lot of uh, mass shootings, you hear about mental health, and nothing seems to happen on that front either. That's kind of my cynical view. Harry Cheadle is a senior editor at Vice.com, and he got this cynical after he started tracking how gun control legislation moves in Washington. He's been doing it since the Parkland shooting last spring. But nothing was getting done, and so I wanted to kind of rewind the clock back to a time when we were able to get something done. And that led me back to the early 90s, and that led me to the California street shooting. A lot of screaming and just like, get out, let's get out of here, and people just, just head for the stairwell. Did you see officers running toward the building when you got out? What was when I got out, there was, there was no police at all, and someone ran across the street and grabbed a meter maid, and she got on the radio and just called in, and all of a sudden, uh, cops coming come from everywhere. Until we talked, I'd forgotten about the California street shooting. But Harry says, more than 20 years ago, this tragedy changed how we talked about guns in this country. And more than that, it changed the law nationwide. So in the wake of violence in Gilroy, Dayton, El Paso, with lawmakers seemingly stuck, I asked Harry to tell me what made this incident, decades ago, different, and what activists today could learn by looking back. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. 
When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. What if Dear Abby was an investigative reporter? I'm Charles Duhigg, the author of The Power of Habit and host of a new Slate podcast, How To. On How To, we answer your toughest questions like, how do I fire a bad employee? Or, Or how do I donate a kidney to my mom? Or how do I tell the perfect joke? Or how do I rob a bank? To listen, subscribe to How To on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. The last time Congress passed major gun control legislation was in the early 90s. It was just after the California street shooting, which took place in San Francisco on July 1st, 1993. On July 1st, 1993, a gunman walked into a downtown San Francisco office building and killed eight people and then killed himself. The sound of gunshots sent terror through employees high up in a San Francisco office building this afternoon as a heavily armed gunman entered the offices of a prestigious law firm and began killing people. It was, as far as anyone can tell, an utterly random shooting by a disturbed man. All I saw was a a bullet-ridden conference room windows, lots of bullet holes, and then I ran. What got a lot of attention was he used extended magazine, so he had more bullets than ordinary handguns would, and he used something called a Hellfire trigger to allow the guns to fire faster. A white man in his 50s, dressed in a business suit, with two semi-automatic weapons strapped to his suspenders and a Code 45 in his hand, walked into the conference room on the 34th floor. Conference room. There was this law firm that was the site of most of the casualties, and then this gunman just walks in from the elevators and starts firing, and it was you know, the sense of like, if it can happen in this place, it can happen literally anywhere in the country. So this guy's motive was very jumbled. It was unclear why he did what he did. He shot himself in the wake of committing all of these murders. Yeah, uh, he, you know, he had some business with a law firm years ago, but, you know, it wasn't clear why that would have motivated him. He had an enemies list that they found, but no one he killed was actually on that enemies list. So it, it's totally like even now, no one knows you know, what was going through his mind. So all of the focus really became on the weapons he was carrying. Yes, that's right. And, um, you know, I, I talked to um, the wife of one of the victims of that shooting, and she said that immediately after the shooting, they were focused on uh, getting an assault weapons ban passed. That was that was the number one focus of the group initially. So eight people died, six people were injured. You say the survivors of this shooting became activists almost immediately, within hours after the shooting itself. Yeah, I mean, as in the case with some uh, mass shootings today, like the Parkland shooting in particular, they immediately turned to activism. And they went to hearings um, in front of Congress. One of them um, famously uh, had like a baby carrier and he carried his uh, 10-month-old daughter uh, because his his wife had died. And and he castigated the gun manufacturers and said, you know, if you're going to have the instruction manuals about how to use these guns, can you have an instruction manual for me? 
about how to raise my daughter alone. You can't imagine the pain unless you've been in this seat. Your brain won't let you hurt as hard as mine hurts. This is a guy named Steve Spizzato. His baby girl, Megan, is strapped to his back as he testifies before a Senate committee. You can see her squirming behind her dad. Sometimes the mic picks up her cooing. Liberty in the pursuit of happiness. You tell him, Megan. For me, that pursuit Steve Spizzato gave this testimony just a month or so after his wife was murdered. Within hours of her death, he'd started writing to President Bill Clinton about the weapons that were used to kill her. These people were, I think, for shooting victims and, and um, the families of shooting victims, unusually privileged in a way of, like, they knew how laws got passed. And they knew how to focus their activism. So eventually, Momentum started growing to do a couple of things, nationally at least, to pass the Brady Bill and to pass an assault weapons ban. Can you just briefly explain what both of those things are? Like the Brady Bill had been rolling around D.C. for a number of years when this shooting happened, right? Right. The Brady Bill was named after um, the White House press secretary who was injured in a shooting during the Reagan administration. And it mandated background checks for all gun purchasers. And the Brady Bill was, you know, had a ton of bipartisan support. Uh, Reagan came out in favor of it. Uh, Gerald Ford came out in favor of it. You know, it was there was a huge amount of momentum for it. And even then, uh, the Republicans tried to filibuster it and eventually kind of gave in, you know, because there was so much public pressure that they decided to just let it pass. Their phones began to ring. The telegrams began to come. People began to complain. They this is columnist Charles McDowell. He's speaking to PBS's Washington Week in 1993, right after the Brady Bill was passed. Half a dozen senators within 24 hours had gone to Bob Dole and say, we got too far out on this one. We blocked it. My people, it turns out, want it. A lot of people want it. I've always privately wanted it. I scared to be for it, was a typical Republican reaction. We're talking about a major change, which we ought to talk about. And then there was the assault weapons ban, which passed in 1994. Tell me a little bit about what that did. Right. So the assault weapons ban was more controversial than the Brady Bill even. What it ended up doing was banning kind of a variety of features that many guns had. And some of these features were kind of criticized for being cosmetic, like a pistol grip on a rifle which you could say doesn't really have anything to do with the lethality of a weapon. But it, it made it much more difficult to own one of these assault rifle-style weapons. And it also came with a provision that had it expire after 10 years, which is also something that, that weakened it. So it was very much a compromised piece of legislation. A lot of manufacturers could just sort of wait it out. So you really show how this particular shooting opened a door for a couple of pieces of legislation to pass, which are compromises, but are big national legislation. But I wonder if we can talk, too, about what else was happening that made these bills possible. Like, for instance, the crime rate in the United States was very different then than it is now. Right. It was much, much higher. There was a lot more crime, and people were talking about crime a lot more. You know, it was it was something that was in the paper every day. And people all over the country, no matter your political party, you were worried about crime. The assault weapons ban passed as part of this big, big 
crime bill. That's still really controversial today. Um, but the intention there was to reduce the crime rate by doing all kinds of things like building prisons, hiring more police officers, um, just generally getting tougher on crime. And so that's part of what gun control was seen as a part of. Yeah. And one of the more interesting things I found in your reporting was that at a certain point, the FBI itself got involved. And you know, law enforcement basically said, we're backing a series of gun control measures as Congress was doing its work. What, what kind of impact do you think that had? I think it was it was part of this broader sense that like this was something that needed to happen. You know, you had the FBI say that you had some um, Democrats because back then the Democratic Party was not unified at all on gun control. You had some Democrats who were pro-gun who came around on this issue and agreed to vote for the ban, even though they came from uh, districts where that wasn't a popular stance to take. Um, you had a lot of people who were willing to kind of change their views. There were a ton of really prominent mass shootings in the news. Uh, you know, crime was 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 everywhere, or it, that's what it seemed like. And so you had a lot of people who were like, "Well, let's you know, let's try this." So eventually, the Brady Bill and the assault weapons ban pass. Bill Clinton seemed to see this work as a kind of moral imperative. Yes. Without eroding the rights of sportsmen and women in this country, we will finally ban these assault weapons from our street that have no purpose other than to kill. But it's kind of interesting because in the end, he ended up blaming gun control for political losses later. That's true. And that's something that's debatable, I think. Um, I've, I've talked to people who say that that's a little bit overblown and that the Republican wave that kind of took the Democrats out of office in 1994 was a product of a lot of different things, but that certainly didn't help. He saw it as a moral imperative, and he was willing to use a lot of political capital to get that done. And that resulted in a loss of an election, which I think is sometimes what happens when you try really hard to get controversial legislation passed. You end up losing seats in Congress. What's the evidence that these bills had any impact on gun violence. I mean, we're many years later now. It seems like gun violence is worse than ever. So so what is the what is the evidence? Well, I, I think, first of all, we should say that gun violence is actually a lot lower today than it is back then, at least in terms of the crime rate. Causes of that reduction are debatable. You know, they're based on a ton of different things. The best evidence that we have about the assault weapons ban is that it reduced the number of mass shooting events somewhat, not by a ton, but it did have an effect. Some people say even the Brady bill was so watered down, it wasn't particularly effective. I wonder if you can explain some of the compromises inside that legislation. The big thing people point to with the Brady bill is what's known as a gun show loophole, which allows people to buy guns at a gun show without going through that background check. These days, that background check is also instant. So originally, Brady Bill had like a, a five-day waiting period built into that. And now you don't need to go through a waiting period anymore. One one big thing, um, along with an assault weapons ban that people want, is to make the universal background check more universal and to force more people to go through it. I wonder if you see any kind of roadmap here. Looking back at the early 90s, what happened after the California street shooting do you look at that and see any kind of way forward legislatively? I think at the state level you do. 
you know, because there's so many gun laws that matter at the state level. California has passed a lot of uh, gun control legislation since then, and they've seen their gun violence rates uh, drop even more steeply than the national gun violence rates. And I, sh- I should add that, like, you know, obviously states are also going the other way and making it easier to carry guns everywhere at all times. So it's not like this is a one-way street, but there's a lot of action at the state level when it comes to guns. It seemed like it was such a mixture of elements that combined to make gun control legislation passable back in the 90s. I just wonder if you look at the situation we're in now, which is quite different, and see any X factors that make you think, oh, this might combine to shift how we think about this. You know, of course, we have the NRA, which is going through a time of great change. But I wonder if there's anything else that stands out to you when you look around and you say, oh, maybe this could be one of those factors. One thing I was thinking about today was that there kind of needs to be something in addition to guns that drives the debate. Like there was crime in the 90s. And it might be white nationalism today. Um, You know, a lot of people uh, from both parties are talking about white nationalism, talking about how this is a huge problem. And it's not really clear what that's going to mean in terms of policy yet. But I think if you start from the premise that you want to take away guns from white nationalists, you know, you want to make it harder for white nationalists to get guns, you know, harder for hate crimes like these to get committed. I think you could arrive at a place where you end up supporting uh, some form of gun control legislation, you know, maybe expanded red flag laws. Can you explain what the red flag laws are? Uh, So red flag laws, which are uh, state laws, allow people to go to a state court and say, we think this person should not have the guns that he or she has because they are going to hurt themselves or going to hurt other people. And then if the court agrees, that person would have their guns taken away. Um, You see this uh, spoken about in the context of domestic violence a lot. And you could you could talk about this in the context of if someone is going through uh, a clear mental health crisis and might hurt themselves with the guns they have. So these these are laws that would allow uh, the police to uh, take someone's guns away temporarily is the is the idea. And I think that President Trump referred to red flag laws as being important in his national address on on Monday morning. So that was basically a punt to the states instead of taking it to the federal level? That's what it seems like. I mean, we'll see in the coming days if any Republicans start talking about red flag laws. You know, in the past, after the Las Vegas shooting, Trump really strongly condemned uh, bump stocks, which are devices that allow semi-automatic weapons to fire more quickly. And that kind of didn't go anywhere after he said it. Harry Cheadle, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Harry Cheadle is a senior editor at Vice.com. The red flag laws he mentions, they've got one prominent Republican backer already, Senator Lindsey Graham. He supports a proposal to incentivize more states to pass red flag laws. The Washington Post notes that Republicans like this proposal because it creates no federal law restricting gun access. The shootings in Dayton and El Paso 
were just two of five mass shootings recorded over this past weekend, according to the Gun Violence Archive. The weekend before, there were eight mass shootings recorded in the U.S., including one in our own backyard in Brownsville, Brooklyn, at a long-running annual block party. And that's the show. What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris, produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and Ethan Brooks. If you're looking for something else to listen to right now, hop on over to the Gists feed with Mike Pesca. Today, he's talking to Austin Serrett. He's a professor at Amherst College, the co-author of The Lives of Guns. He's going to be talking about how important it is to reach out to gun owners who are actually in favor of restrictions like bans on assault rifles and high-capacity magazines. All right. Thanks for listening. Talk to you tomorrow. Hey, this is Mary Wilson. I'm a producer for What Next? And we wanted to issue a quick correction because after this episode aired, we realized that Harry Cheadle misspoke. Back in March, the DOJ issued a new rule that did indeed ban bump stocks. However, Congress did not pass a law against bump stocks. That's it. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.